with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, we're going to be hearing from Walter Babbage, the brand new city manager at Prince George City Hall. But first off, to start uh, this Thursday morning program, we have yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. When I looked out my window in Toronto this afternoon, the sky was incredibly hazy. And when I went outside, it just sort of felt like the air was sitting on me, really, really heavy. The haze was because of forest fire smoke from northwestern Ontario and as far away as British Columbia. It was a visceral reminder that climate change is not some far off problem. It's here. And it feels like we've been getting a lot of those reminders lately. For six years, Catherine McKenna was a key player in the Liberals' response to climate change. As Environment Minister, she helped implement a national carbon tax. She then moved on to become Minister of Infrastructure and recently announced her retirement from politics. While Canada has just committed to reduce its carbon emissions by 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, many environmentalists say that the federal government is not acting quickly or substantially enough on this issue and is too beholden to the oil and gas industry. Today, my conversation with Catherine McKenna about whether her ministry and the Trudeau government met this crucial moment in the fight against climate change. Minister McKenna, thank you very much for making the time. It's great to join. So I, I wonder if we could start today with uh, with some of the latest news. So in Canada, we saw a record-breaking heat wave out west recently that that researchers say would not have been possible without human-caused climate change. And a town that burned to the ground, ongoing wildfires happening earlier than expected. Outside of Canada, of course, more heat waves, but also the Amazon now has started to emit more CO2 than it absorbs. We're seeing, quote, once in a century type floods in Europe. And, you know, I recently, I recently had a, had a child. He's about 14 months now. And, and I have to say, I struggled. I struggled a bit, right? With the idea of bringing a life into the world, knowing what the science is saying here. And I know that you have um, children as well. And and I wonder, how, how do you take in all of this news as a parent? Uh, well, it's hard. Um, sometimes I think we have a disconnect. We don't really understand that the science is the science. Um, and we just need ambitious climate action. And, I, and you know, as is much for the future for our kids. Um, we often talk about, you know, timelines. We talk about 2030 targets or 2050. Like I'm hoping I'm still around in 2050, but my kids, you know, will be having kids potentially then. And we're really right now, we're at a point where we need to get our act together. Um, you know, we in Canada, we have a, an ambitious climate plan. There's still more work to do. We need the whole world to be putting a price on pollution, getting off coal, making investments in reducing emissions and infrastructure, whole range of things. Um, but we don't have time. And uh, I, I really do think about this both as a mom, uh, where I just look at my kids and I, I think, you know, what future do I want for them? But also in my role, and my role is, yes, a politician, but it's also someone who has developed an expertise on climate action. And so I think, you know, how can I be most useful? Like there's some very practical things we need to do. The whole planet needs to get off coal. 
like now. I mean, as fa- fast as possible, 2030 for for developed countries, uh, 2040 for China, 2050 for the rest of the world. So these are kind of moonshots, but are practical things we actually have to do. And so I look at how could I make a difference, um, of course, in Canada, but also the pollution doesn't know any borders. So we really need to be driving the ambition internationally too. Okay, so so I think today, then, I'd like to spend some time talking about the legacy of your government when it comes to fighting climate change, considering where we are right now. And so according to the most up-to-date data available between 1990 and 2019, under the Conservatives and now under, under your Liberal government, we have seen Canada's greenhouse gas emissions go up 21%, while they've gone down for other G7 countries like Germany and the UK. And so... You know, I understand your point that we need to get moving now, but but why hasn't Canada been able to do the same up until now? Well, so, I mean, we've taken a whole range of measures. So there was a decade of complete inaction where we we're going in the absolute wrong direction. And so we have brought in a price on pollution. We're phasing out coal by 2030, which is an advance of many other countries, including Germany, um, including the U.S. Uh, we're 80 clean, 80% clean electricity. Uh, we are um, we have a clean fuel standard. We have a whole range of me- regulatory measures. And then on top of that, we're making historic investments in infrastructure. But it takes time. You can look at our projections because what we do is we have to continuously um, put out our projections in a transparent way. And you will see that we are driving down. It's just when you're phasing out coal by 2030, it's not happening tomorrow. When you make an investment in a major public transit project, it doesn't happen tomorrow. So if only these investments had been made or this action had been taken uh, under the under a previous government. And I'm not trying to point fingers because I would say, uh, you know, different governments have not driven climate action. Uh, it's a challenge in Canada because we're a federation. So, you know, unfortunately, you saw the fight and the price on pollution. There were provinces that were dead set against it. Now, luckily, we won at the Supreme Court. But that makes it trickier because Alberta and Saskatchewan's emissions are going up extremely uh, significantly. And per capita, they're much higher than in other places. Um, but you've seen, in good news, ambitious action at the provincial level by BC, by Quebec, um, Ontario, when they phased out coal under uh, the McGuinty government. That was the largest reduction of emissions in Canada's history. But, you know, it does take time. Policies take time to put into effect. along with transportation, are two of the biggest sources of emissions in this country. And according to the International Institute for Sustainable Development, Canada spent about $2 billion bucks on fossil fuel subsidies last year alone, including supporting Newfoundland's offshore oil industry, for example. And the Institute says that agencies like Export Development Canada provide, on average, um, $13 billion a year on domestic and international fossil fuel production and exploration. And so why does this government spend so much money on oil and gas when we know how much it contributes to the country's greenhouse gas emissions? Well, I mean, I think that number one, it is a transition. I mean, we still are, we are not, uh, you know, completely electrified and have solutions across the board. But I do think there's a reckoning. 
Um, I do think that we need to really think hard about the transition to a cleaner future. One, the economy is going in that direction. So it's a huge vulnerability to our economy to be overly reliant on fossil fuels that we have to get off of and the world is moving to get off of. Um, but also we have a moral obligation. So look, I, I think that that is something that there's work to be done on. But you look, I mean, we are once again a federation. And so we have one province, well, a couple of provinces, Saskatchewan and Alberta, whose emissions are going up, um, who continue to push against good climate policy. There's now, um, you know, it looks like an inquiry into uh, folks that are pushing for climate action in Alberta. A, a billion dollars was spent on a pipeline um, that it was quite clear that if President Biden was elected, it wasn't going to go ahead. And that money could have been used for any other investments. So I think we need to take a rational approach. And the way I look at it, I mean, put it outside of the oil and gas sector. If you're a business that's in transition and you don't have a plan for a very different future, you will go out of business. And that's when we talk about stranded assets. Like this is just about proper planning, but it's planning for jobs and workers. Like how are we helping workers and jobs if we're making bets that are just not going to come to fruition? So I think there is certainly work and conversations that need to be had. And we need to just focus on how do we support all Canadians? Because I certainly believe if you're a worker in the energy, the oil and gas sector, you deserve a good job, that your community deserves to have opportunities. But we need to look at where the future is going. I mean, I, I know it's overused, but it's where the puck's going. Yeah. Um, and so we should be focused on that. I, I want to come back to uh, that, that just tra- transition for, for workers and, and your government's plan for it. You know, I've heard you talk about other provinces qu- quite a bit so far. How much responsibility do you think the federal government has here, though? Uh, we have huge responsibility. I mean, the reality is, though, there are areas of federal and then there are areas of provincial jurisdiction. That's why we ended up at the Supreme Court with the price and pollution. But look, on the just transition piece, which I don't even actually really like the language, I don't think that that's great language to be using. But if you just say support for workers and communities so they have good jobs and can succeed, we've done a fair bit in the context of coal. So we created, I think, the world's first just transition task force. And you had Hassan Youssef, so a labor leader with a, with a panel. They went to communities where we were literally, you know, telling people they weren't going to have a job. We're phasing out coal. And they would go to town halls and there'd be like 600 people there and they would be angry or upset or worried, which are completely reasonable reactions. And they had conversations. And I think what what the reflections on that was that that actually you have to listen to people and, and people actually value that. They couldn't believe that the federal government, that a panel would actually come to their community and hear about what they're concerned about and how they could support them. Because I actually think... Most people understand that the climate is changing and most people want to take serious action. Just to stay on this topic for a moment of the oil and gas subsidies, like a lot of this money is coming from federal government. And, and you know, the International Monetary Fund estimates that uh, elimination of, of fossil fuel subsidies would reduce CO2 emissions by 28%. And, you know, I do, 
I do wonder here if part of the problem is that this government, as, as critics have, have said, is too cozy with the oil industry. So, for example, Martin Lukacs from The Breach recently reported that during the pandemic, a committee was created that included high-ranking liberal government officials and heavy hitters in the oil and gas industry. And there were frequent meetings to figure out ways for the industry to stay active and, and viable. Like this, is, this is a lot of money here that these companies have, have been receiving. So I think, first of all, because I think we talk in the abstract, like, what are we talking about as possible fossil fuel subsidies? I think this is a really important conversation that Canadians need to have. But there's fossil fuel subsidies range from you communities that are on diesel. And it's really expensive because, uh, you know, the, the cost of living is expensive there. So they get subsidies so that, that life is affordable. That can be rural remote communities. Um, clean tech. That, you know, that if you could produce your, whether it's oil and gas or manufacturing in a cleaner way, that we're making investments to do that. I think that is there a good conversation around whether we should be supporting, um, you know, the, these companies to reduce their emissions significantly? I think that's a good conversation. Um, but it's not in, in some ways often what is counted as a fossil fuel subsidy. I know some organizations count if you uh, don't have a provincial sales tax. Like, I'm not entirely sure. Like, I think you got to get into the weeds of this. I don't disagree with the sense that you've got to create the right incentives and not the wrong ones. Do, do you really think, though, that the majority of this money is going to initiatives that would, would either be considered, you know, necessary by taxpayers or important by taxpayers or uh, initiatives that that would fight climate change? You know what? Imperial oil, well, I mean, for I example. Guess, yeah, if I could just give you this example. If yeah. Imperial oil claimed $120 million through the Wade sub- subsidy program this year and, and issued $320 million in dividends, according to your uh, So report. I think that's unacceptable. So, I mean, this is Catherine McKenna speaking. Um, look, we had programs through COVID, so we're now bringing those into a fossil fuel subsidy discussion. I mean, those were programs that were open to any company. Um, so I, in a way, I guess, you know, you could say those are fossil subsidies because they're going to these companies. Um, but it was really so we could keep people in jobs. Now, should a particular company have received them? I mean, I think we will see. Um, and I think that, you know, when people are paying large dividends and they're getting money, um, I don't know, they, that is an issue. Um, and I think that that's something that, uh, you know, Canadians would not have a lot of tolerance for. And personally, I don't have a lot of tolerance for. Would you like to see these subsidies? big time curtailed or eliminated altogether? Well, as I say, like you can't, you actually have to go kind of line by line and see what exactly we're talking about. There are federal, there are obviously federal subsidies. Some are probably things that Canadians would say are useful. Some would say no. Um, and then there are a lot of provincial subsidies. Um, you know, different provinces have incentives in place. I would say though, it is extremely important to look at the incentives, how we are reducing emissions, how we're driving to a cleaner future. Because um, you could say, and I, I don't want to be repetitive, but I do think this is a conversation Canadians need to think about. If you have, for example, um, you know, a, a smaller oil and gas company, take it in Alberta, and they have a way to upgrade so they can significantly re- reduce emissions um, when they produce oil and gas. Is that something we want to do? It would reduce emissions, but then some people would say, well, that's not a sector we should be investing in at all. And as I say, like, these are real conversations. Climate policy is like real life. It actually, you have to not have it in the abstract. I think folks often have it in an abstract. They don't think about people. They also don't think about science on climate. Um, I mean that probably more 
politicians, but it's on us to really unpack this. I guess, sorry, I'll, I'll just ask one, one more time, um, you know, just as you, you as, you know, former environment minister, current infrastructure minister, as, as somebody who's sort of leaving politics, do you feel like your government could have done more here on the issue of subsidies? Uh, well, I mean, we definitely, as I said, I think we've had a review. I think that we've removed a number of subsidies. Is there more to do? I think so, for sure. Um, but just more broadly on climate, like we have worked extremely hard. Like I know life isn't about how hard you worked, but looking across the board, climate is actually, it, as I say, it's just like a very functional thing. Where are your emissions coming from? How do you reduce them um, in the most, you know, ideally efficient way? How do you consider folks' livelihood and jobs and, uh, you know, our economy? You gotta, you gotta look at a lot of different factors. That's not an excuse. Um, I think we've actually done a lot. We had no plan and a target. Now we have a plan that's going to exceed the target, uh, but of course we need to do more and the world is shifting fast. So I think there's huge opportunities and a huge risk of being left behind uh, if we don't. That is part one of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. Part two coming up in a moment here on Prince George's Community Station CFIS FM. You're listening to After Nine. Hi, I'm Timmy, the host of the daily feature, the Onstage Spotlight, your way of keeping informed about performers and performances happening throughout the Prince George area. I'll be highlighting artists from all musical genres, both local and from around the world. I'll be featuring not only their music, but concert details and interesting insights into the music industry. So join me weekdays at 8.30, 11.30, and 3.30, Saturdays at 9.30 and 12.30, and Sundays at 12.30. That's the Onstage Spotlight, only on CFIS FM 93.1. Due to the ongoing pandemic and restrictions set out by the Provincial Health Authority, the Prince George Community Foundation has decided to postpone the 2021 Citizen of the Year. The annual award is given to those who have gone above and beyond in community volunteerism and philanthropy. Whether it is the giving of time, talent, expertise, or just being a good advocate, all of these play a role in making Prince George the wonderful community it is. The Community Foundation will pass along updates on the next Citizen of the Year awards when they become available. Minds in Motion is a weekly program provided online for people experiencing early symptoms of dementia and their care partners. Each session has a 30-minute fitness video, followed by 45 minutes of social time. Sessions are offered Tuesday through Thursday from 10 to 11.30, as well as Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday from 1 to 2.30. For more information or to register, call the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033 or email info.helpline at alzheimerbc.org. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today with a 40% chance of showers. Wind from the southwest at 30 gusts into 50, a high of 17. Partly cloudy tonight, southwest winds becoming light this evening, a low of 7. For Friday, mainly cloudy, wind from the southwest at 20 gusts into 40, a high of 20 with a high UV index. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is part two of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. I want to come back to this idea of, of a just transition uh, that you were talking about earlier, you know, for these oil and gas workers uh, who who are understandably like 
really worried about what their future might hold. And and just also speaking of your climate plan, um, I, I have read it, and there there are not a lot of details about what that just transition would actually look like. What would you say to, to critics? Unifor, for example, that re- represents 12,000 oil and gas workers who, who feel like this government hasn't done enough to ensure that there will be a just transition for people. You know, the countries that are serious about having a transition plan for workers are trying to figure out how to do it because it's not that easy, right? You can't just say, okay, we're going to take one job in the oil and gas sector and suddenly you're going to be making the same amount of money in a unionized position um, in the green economy. Uh Life doesn't actually work like that. So I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done to understand how best to do it. This is something I grapple with a lot can't just be told you're not going to have a job, right? Like that you're kind of collateral damage. And then, you know, what happens, you know what they say? They say people in cities, you know, who can go, you know, and, and go sip their Starbucks lattes are like, you know, they don't care about us. And that's not a good situation. It really isn't because these are real people with real jobs. And let's all be clear. We all benefited from coal. We all benefited from oil and gas. In fact, we're still benefiting, but that, that doesn't mean we don't have to move forward. And that doesn't mean, but it also doesn't mean that you can't have empathy. I think empathy and climate is extremely important. Empathy for young people who are honestly that they have depression related to climate change, empathy for indigenous peoples who are worried about, you know, their lands, about their traditional uh, medicines, about the thawing permafrost and empathy for workers who are in the oil and gas sector. Mm -hmm. But I guess just I'll ask one more time. Like what, what would you say to critics who say, like, uh, your government would have seen this coming a long time ago and should have done way more earlier here to make sure that there are, like, very real plans in, in, in place? And I guess sort of on top of that, I would say, you know, during this pandemic, a, a lot of people who care about climate issues looked at the resources that this government marshaled, and they are questioning today why hasn't more been done like that with the climate emergency? Like I'm talking Green New Deal type stuff here, like massive, massive, massive investments in energy efficient housing, guaranteed jobs to anyone, good jobs, union jobs to anyone who wants one in these sectors. Like why aren't we applying what we did in the pandemic to the climate crisis? So I think that that's what we need to do. But I I think, look, I think the pandemic, though, is a useful uh, guide. Because what happened, and I talk about this, what happened in the pandemic? We had a very clear goal. We needed to get out of it. We needed to support people and we needed to get a vaccine. Um, and we marshaled the resources from the public sector, the private sector. And, and look, we were able to, I, I think, you know, we're not at the end of this. We were able to get out of the pandemic. I totally agree. I think we need to think like that when it comes to the climate crisis, because that is the biggest challenge. Um, and that we all, Canada, every single country needs to wake up every day, have the clear goal, which is a temperature goal well below two degrees, striving for 1.5, really listening to science and scientists. I mean, now you can just look out the window because I'm looking here at Hayes in downtown Toronto from forest fires. Yeah, it's brutal. Um, I'm also here. It's brutal. And, and it's actually an air quality issue. So it's actually a health issue uh, right now. But but also just everyone working together. And I think that that is something that in Canada, it is a challenge with the provinces. It is very important that provinces come on side. Provinces, municipalities, the federal government, the business sector. The business sector has to take responsibility. Now, a lot of companies are talking about net zero by 2050. Okay, let's see your plan. 
right? Like, I mean, I've had to do a plan and we actually have to publish it all. Like we have to publish our emissions every year and how we're tracking on our plan. So everyone needs to be part of this. Canadians need to be part of it. And the whole world needs to be part of it. And so, you know, people say, well, you're leaving politics. Like, we need every country actually to do what Canada's doing. You know, I, I think now probably I can be more useful uh, actually working with other countries, um, for example, to get the whole world off coal. Because we don't get off coal. It doesn't matter all these other measures we're doing. Everyone needs to get off coal. But I, I wonder just as a, as a final question on, on that note that you are leaving politics, um, but plan to stay dedicated to this fight against climate change. Do you worry that you're giving the impression that more substantive work can be done from outside government than within it? And I guess, frankly, do you feel that more substantive work can be done from outside government than within it? So that was really a surprising question when people said that, because Canada's one country. Like, we have a climate plan. After a decade of nothing going the wrong way, we have a climate plan. We have regulatory measures. We have to grind away. We have to continue moving forward. Um, There's more work to be done for sure. But the rest of the world has to do this. Like, if China doesn't get off coal and make the transition, India, Indonesia, where I lived for three years, um, if we all don't work together, it doesn't work like that. Like, pollution doesn't know any borders. So my focus... uh, I believe in the future, I will always be pushing Canada and I will be calling people out. Don't worry if I don't think we're taking ambitious action or we're backtracking. Um, and I will continue to work with Indigenous peoples in Canada. That's extremely important to me. But I, I think the whole world needs to act. And I believe through my, you know, the opportunities I've been given internationally through COP21, but also we created the Ministry on Climate Action with China and the UK, the Powering Past Coal Alliance. We also worked very hard to uh, to get countries to do follow Canada to protect 30% of our nature. Like I need to, I think, play a role pushing that internationally. So every other country does this and also support developing countries who need investments and need support to actually make the transition. I mean, some who will be underwater if we don't stay well below two degrees. Um, so, look, there's a lot of work to go around. Um, it's not just in politics, but politics is extremely important. But globally, we need a lot more work, too. OK, uh, Catherine McKenna, thank you very much. Thanks. Great. So before we go today, some news. As of late Tuesday, British Columbia has declared a state of emergency as fires there continue to grow. The declaration will allow the government to speed up mass evacuations and to secure accommodation for people if needed. As of yesterday, there were more than 2,800 properties under evacuation order province-wide and more than 10,000 properties under alerts. More than 3,000 square kilometers of land have been burned by wildfires in BC so far this season, three times the 10-year average for this time of year. I'm Jamie Poisson. Thanks so much for listening to Front Burner, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is yesterday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You can also catch Front Burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After 9 returns, we will have new city manager 
Walter Babich. The Knowledge Garden at the Prince George Public Library is now open for the season. The garden is located next to the Bob Harkins branch of the library downtown and features benches and a picnic site. It also has a small amphitheater where library staff conduct many outdoor programs and it's a great place to enjoy your lunch in the beautiful surroundings. That's the Knowledge Garden at the Prince George Public Library, now open next to the Bob Harkins branch downtown. It's a downtown Summerfest Saturday and it should be a really good time. July 31st is Bikes Downtown, part of the Downtown Summerfest Saturdays, hosted by Downtown PG. Hop on your bike and get some exercise while you do some great shopping downtown. While there, enter for a chance to win a special $500 gift certificate from Logic. Also, make sure to browse through the two downtown markets on 3rd, part of Downtown Summerfest Saturdays, Bikes Downtown, July 31st. Staying hydrated during hot weather is important, especially during extreme heat. The healthiest way to stay hydrated is by making water your drink of choice. While other beverages can be loaded with calories, sodium, sugars, or saturated fats, straight water is the natural alternative to quench your thirst and rehydrate. Looking for a little flavor? Add a mix of fruit and herbs. More information on hydrating with healthy drink options is available through the Canada Food Guide at Canada.ca. What does aging and living well mean to you? Share your perspectives about what aging and living well looks like and could look like for two SLGBTQI communities in Canada and how communities could be better supported. Everyone who's 65 or older identifies as two SLGBTQI and is willing to participate in a telephone or video interview is invited to participate in the National Senior Study. For more information or to take part, click through the National Senior Study link under eGale in Action at eGale.ca. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And as promised, we have Walter Babich in studio to talk about city uh, happenings. And uh, but, but before we get to that, you're brand new officially as the city manager, correct? Yes, that's right. Thanks very much, Reg. Thanks for having me this morning. Not a problem. Let's get a bit of your background and, and sort of introduce you to those that don't know you. You've actually been with the city for a while, though. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I've, uh, I joined the city in 2008 mm-hmm. in a management position. But prior to that, um, I was in private practice in law. I worked for a local law firm here. Um, focusing on business law, corporate law, and local government law, of course. Right. Um, so I've lived in Prince George uh, since 1995. Uh, went uh, to uh, law school, obviously, prior to that. Uh, before that, I uh, was born and raised in Fraser Lake area. Oh. So I'm a North Central Interior uh, kid. Um, very familiar with Prince George. Uh, was a uh, uh, a, a place where I look forward to, to spending time in uh, as a, a child and uh, more so as a teenager growing up and uh, considered it my second home and uh, chose to come back to Prince right. George uh, after finishing law school and uh, had a lot of options and we chose to return here. Uh, we love the community. We're committed to the community. Um, been here, like I say, for uh, you know more than t- 27 years and look forward to, to spending the rest of my career here, hopefully. 
Oh, cool. Uh, that's one thing that I, I've heard before from people uh, that have were raised in uh, areas around here mm-hmm. is that as a kid, this was the big smoke, right? This was the place you looked forward to going to. Absolutely. Yeah. Every weekend, uh, looked forward to coming to Prince George for uh, services, for entertainment. And um, like I said, it really was our second home. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm proud of uh, where I came from. I'm proud to live in Prince George. And uh, I'm a fierce defender of our of our beautiful fine city uh, when I when I'm elsewhere as well, and uh, I, I work uh, very hard at uh, at promoting Prince George when I'm not here and the surrounding area. I would assume as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know, uh, we describe ourselves as a hub city, uh, which is very true. Uh, we are the the focus of uh, services for the smaller communities around us. They're important for our economic um, uh, well-being as well, and. Uh, and we have a lot of common here in the the, yeah, the north. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, former lawyer, so I have to watch what I say. Uh, <laughs> w- what what made you make that decision to move from from legal practice yep. and and move to city hall? Sure. So. Um, Part of it was the ability to continue to do legal work for the city, actually. Uh, That was the early part of my my tenure at the city was really focused on doing uh, internal legal work for the city that I used to do externally. Mm -hmm. Um, But as uh, my career progressed and uh, my interests broadened, um, you know, local government is is really uh, where it's at in terms of being able to influence and be part of the decision making moving forward so uh, i'm really um enthusiastic about that it's uh i'm passionate about local government about um being able to be part of bettering our city um be part of servicing the community um i I, i'm really passionate about public service and uh, wanting to make sure help to make sure that Prince George remains a great place to live for our children and our grandchildren and and be part of that process be in, involved right. in that process okay let's talk a little bit about the evolution of you at city hall uh, you started off uh, basically as the legal advisor I would take it uh, well um, partly yes uh, so I started as manager of legislative services mm-hmm. and uh, that, um, in short, uh, for those that are familiar with City Hall happenings or structure in the past, the former name is City Clerk for okay. that position. Yeah. Uh, more modernly, that's called Corporate Officer. Um, and that's a, a statutory role every uh, municipality needs to have, a City Clerk or Corporate mm-hmm. Officer. And I was hired in that position with the additional responsibilities and of providing legal advice to the city. So really, the City Clerk, as, as you may know, is uh, the... the parliamentarian of sorts during city council meetings right. and uh, the official signatory for city documents and uh, really the, the conduit between the public and city council to right. uh, stick hands on sort, those Sort of the person that makes sure things are done in the appropriate manner. Yeah. Uh, dots, yeah. The, dots the I's, crosses the T's, make sure everything's in order. Exactly. Making right. sure that the city follows the provincial legislation, that all the all the rules that are, should be followed are followed for uh, council process and and um, that business process. Mm-hmm. So that's how I started my career at the city. And then, uh, as I said, gradually um, I was invited to take on more of an administrative role, more responsibility, uh, overseeing more and more departments at the city, uh, 
and doing less and less internal legal work, but uh, still uh, managing some of the the legal files and right. and doing select legal work for the city where it made sense um, on a cost effective basis. So um, yeah, my my more most recent title before becoming acting city manager is general manager of administrative services, which uh, oversees several departments of the city as well as keeping that corporate officer responsibility. Right. Is that a position that's still in place? Just a different person is there, or uh, is that one of the the positions that sort of got trimmed away? So I was asked to um, become the acting city manager in late mm-hmm. September, and I've been um, holding that position as well as my my former position as okay. general manager of administrative services for the past ten months. Uh, uh, as uh, as you've said, thank you for the the congratulations about uh, being appointed the new city manager. Technically, I'm still in both roles, okay. um, but uh, I don't think that's sustainable uh, moving forward. So we'll we'll have to address that. So I'll throw a, a kind of a Meisner question at you. So so does that mean you're double dipping or no? Uh, no, uh, no. I, I, I would say I'm <laughs> I uh, am looking to cut back to full time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be good. Yeah, I, no. I've uh, thought the same thing around here sometimes. No, one one salary, but holding both positions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about uh, the difference of uh, the new city manager compared to the old in a moment here on After Nine. Crews from the city of Prince George have started the largest sidewalk construction project of the year. City crews are removing 365 meters of old, cracked, and upheaved sidewalks along 20th Avenue from Queensway to Maple Street. This project is one of five sidewalk operations scheduled for 2021, totaling about 1.3 kilometers in length. As part of this work, 20 accessible ramps will be added to improve accessibility. For more information on the sidewalk projects, visit the News and Notices link at PrinceGeorge.ca. The Craft Council of BC invites you to their 8th annual The Earring Show fundraiser. Packed full of creative talent and over 200 pairs of earrings, this exciting exhibition and sale features contemporary design makers producing wearable art in a whole host of mediums. All funds raised go towards the CCB to help promote contemporary crafts across BC and Canada. Tickets are available at craftcouncilofbc.ca, the Earring Show fundraiser from the CCBC, online through July 31st. The Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation invites you to give a hug for healthcare. Celebrate those we can now see, remember those we have lost, and honor the healthcare workers who bravely navigated incredibly challenging times. Create your own hug jar with your individual token amount, then add a token to your hug jar for each hug given and received. Every donation helps and is eligible for a charitable receipt. Hug for healthcare. For more information, contact the Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation office at 250-565-20. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today with a 40% chance of showers. Wind from the southwest at 30, gusts into 50, a high of 17. Partly cloudy tonight, southwest winds becoming light this evening, a low of 7. For Friday, mainly cloudy, wind from the southwest at 20, gusts into 40, a high of 20 with a high UV index. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Talking with Walter Babich, the city manager. What's the official title again? City manager. It is city yes. manager. Yes, okay. Is. Yep. That's that's what I thought. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about the difference between uh, your work as city manager and your predecessor came from an accounting background. So mm. legal compared to accounting, is there a difference, you think, in how things are now being uh, processed or managed uh, compared to the previous uh, manager? Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm not not sure it's appropriate for me to speak too much about uh, the, the previous style. Um, I, I guess uh, I, I like to think that there's a benefit um, from my legal background in, right. in terms of being able to evaluate and look at a situation through that legal lens, even though I, I may not be uh, you know, providing legal advice necessarily. But having that background, uh, I think, is, uh, is added value. Um, for analyzing a situation, um, I, I would uh, like to think that I'm collaborative in my approach um, to leadership. I uh, really uh, stress and uh, put an emphasis on listening uh, to obviously my, my bosses, the city council, uh, but also uh, my colleagues and the community. Um, I look forward to working collaboratively. Uh, to solve problems with you know, creatively and uh, try and have win-wins as much as possible. That's, uh, that's I guess, how I would describe my leadership style. Yeah, okay. So uh, the point that I'm kind of trying to make is uh, management often you look at numbers. Numbers are mm-hmm. important, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when you're, you're running a, a, mm-hmm. a city where mm-hmm. budgets are, are tantamount. Mm-hmm. So is that... Uh, how do how do you how do you make up for the fact that you, that's not your background? I see. Uh, sure. So um, first of all, I, I did come from the private sector, and uh, I had a focus on business law in my my previous life. So I do understand numbers. I, mm-hmm. I do understand uh, accounting, financial statements, and uh, I've got uh, I think a skill set there. But having said that. Uh, the city manager actually technically isn't um, uh, responsible for the f- financial statements of the city. Uh, every municipality has a position called the financial officer, similar yeah. to the corporate officer. Yeah. And uh, we do, of course, and that position is the director of finance. Right. So uh, regardless of who the city manager is um, and what their background is, uh, the director of finance or financial officer is ultimately responsible to ensure that the city is following um, all of the appropriate accounting requirements, the um, accounting standards. Right. And we have an external auditor uh, that uh, looks at our books every year and, and pre- presents a report on that as well. So, mm-hmm. so. Now, uh, when you took over as the acting city manager, I, I think all the headlines were about uh, the slashes, the cuts, the, mm-hmm. the downsizing of City Hall that took place. Uh, what was that? What was that process like? And and give us a little bit of uh, idea of of your mindset going through that. Sure, uh, that was a, a really challenging time. Obviously, um, the most challenging in my career to date, really, uh, because we had to take a, a really hard look at the fiscal reality uh, uh, that was facing the city. Um, you know, it seems like it was an eternity ago, but uh, it was just last November. And COVID was um, hitting us hard. Uh, it was hitting the revenue stream of the city very hard. Uh, we had no idea what was ahead of us, how long it would last, whether we'd get any support from uh, other levels of government. And we had to make some really uh, difficult decisions. Uh, and uh, as, as you say, we, we did do that. Uh, we, we did uh, 
make responsible decisions, I think, to cut uh, positions that um, we, we felt we needed to, to be able to move forward um, responsibly. And uh, yeah, that's a, that was a really tough, tough time. And we tried to mitigate and minimize the impact of that on city staff uh, and, and their families to the extent that we could, but had to make some hard decisions. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, do you think uh, do you think the right decisions have been made? Or are there spots where you think uh, maybe the cuts were too drastic? Um, well, we're you know right now we're in step three, as you know, of mm-hmm. the uh, reopening plans for the province, moving into step four, hopefully in early September. And so, you know, a lot of those cuts were made because we were cutting, we were, were closing facilities and uh, we weren't able to offer those services. Uh, you know, now we've received direction from council uh, when step three was um, announced and it looks positive to moving step four to plan for a reopening. And so we do need to uh, staff up, so to speak, in those facilities to be able to accommodate the customers the, that will be coming back. Um, uh, we anticipate a, a pent-up demand there, you know, in our recreation activities yeah. and services. And so we do need to um, uh, change staffing, uh, increase staffing accordingly mm-hmm. to make sure that we can open those facilities safely and responsibly and be able to accommodate that demand. Right, right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about... Um, uh, well, I, the way I put it is, is the man on the street generally views at City Hall as a bloated government entity. Mm. Uh, you came in and, and, and cut it down. Is that something that you're sort of watching closely as things start to open up, is, is trying not to get it back to where it was? Sure. So we're always looking at doing things more efficiently. Um, you know, the goal is to provide the a high quality of service to the citizens of the city at the most uh, cost effective expense. And so we're always looking to improve. We have launched a continuous improvement uh, program at the city where uh, we are analyzing our processes to try and see if we can do them more efficiently. Um, quicker, uh, better, uh, without the need to to increase staffing. You know, um, as the city grows, uh, then uh, the demands are not going to uh, get any any lesser. Uh, the, you know, the increasing demands, and we're constantly under this pressure of um, minimizing any any tax increases. Uh, you, you may know that city council has uh, had approved a zero percent tax increase uh, for the current year. And so we're, we're very aware that um, council and the community are concerned about escalating expenses, and we're doing the best we can to, to manage that. Excellent. It's sort of like the, uh, the, the line I used the other day. I was in a shop, and, and they wanted to know what, what product I wanted. I said, well, I want the best for the uh, lowest price. <laughs> right. right. How do you make that work, right? Yeah. Uh, we'll take a quick break, come back with more. We're talking with Walter Babbage from City Hall here on After 9. Throughout the summer, United Way of Northern BC will be conducting barbecue fundraisers. These fundraisers will take place on a Thursday, Friday, and Saturday once a month through September. United Way is in need of volunteers for morning and or afternoon shifts to make the barbecues a reality. To help out or for more information, email Michelle B at unitedwaynbc.ca or call the United Way office at 250-561-1040. United Way of Northern BC. 
Together, we can do great things. St. Michael and All Angels Anglican Church in downtown Prince George has launched the largest capital campaign in their 55-year history. The Raise the Roof campaign will run into the fall in an effort to raise $400,000 for much-needed church repairs. For more information and to donate, go to their website, stmichaelspg.ca, or visit the church office at 1505 Fifth Avenue. The St. Mike's Raise the Roof Capital Campaign, on now through August at stmichaels.ca. The Storytime Walk at the Central BC Railway and Forestry Museum is back for the summer. Experience regional history as it comes to life on eight acres featuring locomotives, rolling stock, and heritage structures. The Storytime Walk supports children's early literacy development and incorporates child-friendly facts about the museum's exhibits. To take the tour, download the GeoTourist app from geotourist.com, then search for Railway and Forestry Museum Storytime Walk. The Storytime Walk at the Central BC Railway and Forestry Museum. Back again for summer. The Regional District of Fraser Fort George has issued an evacuation alert for the Shesta Lake and Punshaw area. The alert has been issued as a result of wildfires in the area. Residents are asked to prepare for a possible evacuation order. Information on emergency preparedness is available on the Regional District website at rdffg.bc.ca or by calling 1-800-667-1959. For more information on the wildland fires in the area, visit the BC Wildfire Management Branch at bcwildfire.ca. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we have, uh, well, about eight minutes, seven, eight minutes left talking with Walter Babich, uh, city manager. And uh, before we let you go today, we want to talk about some of the hot topics around town. And I guess the hottest topic uh, for a few months now is the homeless situation in downtown mm-hmm. Prince George. Where are we at uh, in the process of getting that situation solved from a city uh, city standpoint? Sure. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, the city is not immune from the homelessness problem that um, we see throughout, really, uh, North America, um, if not if not broader. And uh, yeah, I, I would it, think it's worldwide. Worldwide, really. yes, yeah. yeah. And you know, we we have seen some some. Um, increases to that problem uh, recently and so uh, council has uh, supported uh, us taking some steps to try and address those that's really complex problem uh, i'm not sure there's really a, a, a solve if that's the way you put it uh, um, it's one of those issues that uh, i i don't think will ever be fully solved but we can certainly take steps to try and mitigate it and minimize it um, and its impact uh, on on the city um, so you know we've we've taken a, a lot of steps to try and address that um, we've opened a, as you may know a community safety hub uh, downtown where we have our bylaw enforcement officers um, stationed out of some of them stationed out of and are working uh, in the integration with other support agencies northern health and and other support services to uh, try and determine um, if there are alternatives for some of these vulnerable people uh, working together collaboratively on that. Council has uh, authorized an increase of four bylaw enforcement officers specifically dedicated to the the downtown and gateway areas uh, to increase the coverage of that area as well as the the time of coverage so that we have shifts that are, um, you know, uh, going not around the clock, but uh, as close as we can to that with, uh, with our resources. So uh, that coupled with um, 
some some efforts to uh, advocate with uh, BC Housing and the provincial government to increase the the housing opportunities uh, in our city. And so we, we've made some um, great strides in that. Uh, BC Housing is working as we speak on uh, 50 um, housing uh, places for homeless people on First Avenue. And we have the First Avenue Integrated Health and Housing Project, which is um, moving forward as well. And so this time next year, hopefully we'll have uh, even more spaces uh, at that location together with some supports um, that are necessary uh, to uh, address, uh, you know, the the complex needs of those people. So uh, that coupled with, um, you know, taking a a stance on, on tent city, if you, if you will call it that, uh, that has grown in downtown Prince George. So um, council has uh, approved a a position on that issue. Council, like the provincial government, um, doesn't see a tent city as a, an ultimate uh, long-term solution for that problem um, for various reasons. But as as those encampments grow, then um, there's not all positive uh, outcomes with that, and they uh, they uh, end up um, based on experiences from other cities that we've learned from and and are taking some advice from that uh, that's it's not not the best option necessarily in, in the long term so we are taking steps to address that uh, as has been reported the city is um, proceeding with an injunction application through the legal process but that process is going to take some time and as part of that process the city needs to demonstrate that there is alternative housing that's available um, for those vulnerable people. So we're working with BC Housing uh, with the assistance of the province to um, get even more transitional housing, specifically low barrier housing uh, in place for those folks um, so that there is an alternative. And we're hearing that BC Housing is making some progress, that they have placed several individuals that were um, living in the in- encampment into some transitional shelter or um, low barrier housing. So um, we're hoping that that momentum continues and uh, we'll have, uh, you know, a a better situation in in the fall here. Okay. Uh, One of the quote unquote solutions that uh, I've heard and and individuals have kind of rolled their eyes at is fining uh, the Mm -hmm. homeless. How how is that? How can that be effective when Mm -hmm. you're talking about people that have no money? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the the bylaw changes that have been presented to council, um, they've received first three readings uh, to the Safe Streets bylaw and an accompanying uh, amendment to uh, uh, to designate a fine for a, a breach of the Safe Streets bylaw. That's been postponed by council, so mm-hmm. it hasn't been decided as to whether that bylaw will be adopted or not. Um, Council has postponed that to uh, the end of August, and um, we'll have to wait and see how how, how Council proceeds with with that um, direction on that bylaw. Okay. One one final thing we want to talk about uh, ever so briefly, we just have a couple of minutes, and that is uh, the current forest fire situation, Mm -hmm. and what is City Hall doing to uh, make sure that Prince George is safe in the event of a very, very close uh, forest fire. Right. Uh, the public safety uh, file at the city is, uh, 
has uh, received a lot of attention over the last few years. Um, you know, after the wildfires of 2017 and 2018, where we uh, acted as a as a uh, um, evacuation host community, um, we've put some resources into planning for the event of an issue like that uh, happening in Prince George. Uh, so we have done some tabletop exercises. Um, we have um, updated our planning for evacuation. We have created evacuation zones and assembly areas with the city. Uh, those zones are aligned with the garbage collection schedules. Uh, this information is available online on the city website. And, of course, if the, the, the threat um, elevates, then we would be communicating with the, the, the community uh, about what to do in the event of an evacuation. But thankfully, um, so far this season, uh, the risk in Prince George is um, is lower than the rest of the province, really, uh, right now. And so um, we see it more likely being that um, other communities will need to evacuate to us and us acting yeah. as a, a host community. But we have taken steps um, on that file to be more prepared and uh Let's hope that we never need to use that plan. No, indeed. Uh, Walter Babbage, thanks for coming in. It was great talking today with uh, Walter Babbage from the city of Prince George, the new city manager. Uh, don't forget to tune in tomorrow after 9. We will have the uh, Ram and Stag podcast followed by the Friday panel. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFIS. SFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts.